from PRX. Today on Studio 360... The scream is, still is, if you see it, it's a, it's a very wild painting. It's extremely expressive and it's extremely careless and it's so powerful and so ruthless. Norwegian writer Carl Uwe Knausgaard, he's got a new subject. This time, not himself, but his country's greatest artist, Edvard Munch. Plus, talking about my experiences as a female was sort of startling. Singer-songwriter Ani DeFranco on herself, as chronicled in a new memoir. A lot of people kind of recoiled from it. A lot of people dubbed me as angry, uh, militant. If there's anything I can do, I say, it's Mr. DeFranco to you. That and more is ahead on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. I grew up in the periphery of the world, I have to say, in, in southern Norway. And I'd, I'd never been to a museum, never seen art in person, really. I was a reader, but I, but I had no experience of art in, in that sense, and I wasn't really interested either. This is the most famous living Norwegian, the writer Carl Uwe Knausgård. And then we went to a school trip when I was, I must have been like 17, around 16, 17 or something, to Oslo. And we went to the National Gallery. And walk, walking around there, seeing them national romantic paintings of fjords and, and mountains and, you know, lush green surfaces and realistic painting. And then turning a corner, coming into a room where everything is different. Everything is intense and everything is, you know, like the paintings are almost coming towards you. This was the room that had the anguished expressionist paintings of Edvard Munch including a scream, one of the most world-famous images ever. And it's probably one of the most beautiful rooms I've ever been in because it's, it's his, like his 10 best paintings that's in that room. I realized this is, you know, on another level. This is something else. Carl Uwe Knausgård is best known for My Struggle, his acclaimed and immensely popular six-volume, 3,600-page super-autobiographical novel. But our conversation was about his new book, So Much Longing in So Little Space, which isn't entirely focused on him. It's about the creative process, using as a case study the paintings of Edvard Munch, who lived from 1863 to 1944 and is still this looming presence in Norway. Munch is the only artist of international significance from Norway. So he's, he's kind of the artist. And I can't remember when I first heard of him or when I first saw a picture of him. It's like he's always been there. Uh, so it just, I had the school books. The covers of them could, for instance, be, you know, of a galloping horse that Munch had paint or the sun that Munch had paint uh-huh. or, you know. So it was like his images was everywhere, but the difference of seeing them live, seeing them in person was... Uh, 
was enormous actually it's like the paintings themselves ha- have an aura you know that doesn't come through when it's reprinted mm-hmm. so i think that's kind of the problem with with uh, a painter like Munch or a painter like Monet or, or every one of those painters you have seen them so many times right. that you've stopped seeing the paintings you see only the character you see Monet you see Monet you see Munch you see Picasso but you don't see the actual painting you know right. that's that's right. a that's that's kind of a problem which is exactly the problem you tried to solve um, when you were asked as a celebrity amateur to to guest curate an exhibit at the Munch Museum in Norway. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the premise you decided on for that show. As you said, I'm I'm an amateur, uh, but being an amateur, I didn't hesitate when they asked me. I said yes, you know, straight away, and I had no idea what what this would take and and what it would demand of me at all. And when they took me down to the basement in the Munch Museum, they had a thousand paintings there and they have 20,000 paperworks of him. And it's, it's a massive amount of, of works. Uh, it was everything he left behind when he died. Uh, I saw so many paintings I'd never seen before. And I thought, that's what I want to show. I want to show Munch that doesn't look like Munch, that doesn't look the iconic Munch, but still is him and still kind of express the same emotions or the same worldview or whatever you whatever you want. But it's much easier to get access to it because you don't have to go the way through Munch, through everything you know about him. You could see them as, you know, afresh as they were once were painted. That was my, you know, ambition. And in your book, you also write about some of his lesser-known paintings that really don't seem Munchian uh, at all. There's, there's this uh, early landscape uh, called Garden with Red House, which I'd never seen. A- and it's the opposite of, of the stylized, grim, tormented pictures of his that we know. Yeah. It's this red house in, in, in rural Norway, and it's, it's gorgeous. It's, it's a pretty scene. But you never look at that and go, oh, yeah, Edvard Munch. What I, what, I, what I thought about that picture is because Munch has a biography, and it's, it's, uh, it's very gloomy. Yes. His uh, mother died when he was a child, and then he, he had a very close relationship to his older sister, who al- almost become his mother and sister in one person, and she died too. Another sister become schizophrenic and, and was an institution. So those losses at a young age, I think, must have determined his outlook on life and his trust in life. He couldn't trust, I think, and it is easy to read his whole, you know, everything he did, all, all paintings in light of that, you know, the anxiety and the death and the gloom. Uh, and then you see those paintings he did, yes. you know, full of light, full of joy. You can't make that fit with, with what he later did at all. And, and then we realize, well, maybe painting was a place for him to hide, a place for him when nothing was uh, threatening anything, it was just pleasure, it was just colors. It must have been like painting was his, you know, his home or his fortress or his world or a place where he was safe, a very good place. And then you have the confrontation in painting with his demons and with the terrible things in his life, and with the dark things in his life. And those are the famous paintings, right. of course. The most famous works, the ones that made him Munch, that seem Munchian, uh, including The Scream, um, they, they all come from this, this really brief period in the, in the 1890s when he was in his 30s. 
his, his period you call when he, when he was the iconographer of strangeness, which is a great phrase. Um, what's he doing that is so radical in those paintings at the time for him? What, what, was, what was the big deal at the moment? Uh, he's not interested in describing the world as it is. He's interested in describing it as he remembers it. So he's a, he's a painter of memory and he's a painter of emotions, which means that there's no hardly no details in the painting. So he there's no realistic world anymore. It's like almost like a dream world. But if you go and see them, if if you don't think about them, go and see them. You will see how powerful they are. They are very, very much alive. Those paintings, uh, definitely powerful. Here we are, still talking about them. But you have a theory that good art gets made by improvising, by by finding your message uh, as you paint or write. And by that standard, these paintings are completely wrong. Yeah, exactly. They're, 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 yeah. They don't begin with some open-endedness. They, they have an idea, they paint it. Yeah, exactly. And they are not really paintings. They're more illustrations of feelings. There's no intellectual frame or anything like that around them. They are very direct and, and communicating almost instantly what they have. And, I mean, the scream is still is, if you see it, it's a, it's a very wild painting. It's extremely expressive and it's extremely careless and it's it's like it's it's so powerful and so ruthless somehow. It's like it's it's that makes the painting immediate, you know, completely it's now it's completely urgent. It's anxiety, it's it's that experience directly to you. It's so unfinished, and it got like this, you know, it's like a brush drug going all the way down on the right side, signifying nothing. It's like it's... it's it's Just that purple stripe. Yeah, exactly. Of. I don't know what it is, but, but there is something there. And if you, if you go back 10 years and see paintings, that would be impossible to do. That. It's just impossible. They wouldn't be a painting. You know, you can't have those kind of marks on a... On a mm on a realistic, on a naturalistic painting. It, it just doesn't work. This is completely new visual language. With a painting like The Scream, um, apart from its over-familiarity and its iconic quality, it is, it's for all of its power, it's so obvious and, oh, okay, this this anguish uh, is happening. And you, you were struck by Munch and had your were knocked out by it when you were an adolescent. Is there something adolescent about uh, Munch's appeal like there is about Jack Kerouac or, you know, uh, J.D. Salinger? I mean, that that people grow out of? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think think so. I think especially that period, 1890s, where his most iconic paintings comes from, I think they they have this adolescence appeal. It had for me, and, and I think it has for many. And, and because they are not intellectual, they are very easily accessible, and they are very powerful and 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 not very complex. I have to say. Yes, I mean that's how you experience art when you are in that age. You know, it's an adolescence that your hunger for that kind of experiences. I think what I didn't really realize about Monk because of the scream and and, and the other famous pictures is that he was always looking for some new visual language, trying to avoid not just cliches, but 
uh, avoid repeating himself. You talk about the act of painting as this this constant battle um, with what already exists and expectations and habit. Yeah, exactly. You have convention and you have ways of doing things and you have tradition. And every time you lift the brush, you know, and, and start to paint, that will be in you. There will be ways of doing things that you will automatically have or know, you know. I have been struggling with that in my writing myself, and I think every writer, every painter struggles with that. And and you don't just mean the th- the the overused formula that everybody would regard as oh that's that's been used forever that's a cliche you mean any any technique or any trope or any idea that an artist just comfortably returns to in his or her own work right it's all it's all of one's personal habits as well and ticks yeah exactly and it's it's about safety it's it's easy if you find a way to do it if you find a way to paint or find a way to write and it's you know proves to be successful or, or at least you know it, it works it's, it's very tempting just to continue because the risk of failure is enormous in in doing these things you know so so for instance a man like you know David Bowie I'm, I'm, he should be admired so much for, for the, the courage he had to completely go somewhere else you know like every mm. second year in mm. the 70s and 80s because the risk and what's at stake is it's the comfort and 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 you and you know your skill you can do it and it's easy you can do and do it once one more time but but if you do it then you know what it is and there's no curiosity anymore and you won't find anything else anything new right i'm fascinated by by the common struggles and and common challenges and 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 problems uh, of artists in different disciplines. Um, you, you say, for instance, uh, that a serious painter, quote, starts a work because he knows what he wants to do but not how to do it. And and, and that seems at least as true uh, of, of writing as painting. Yeah. If you want to get rid of the novel before the novel, if you want to get rid of all the automatic ways in, then you have to do something from scratch, so to speak, and, and build something that you haven't done before. You don't know how to do it. You don't know. And it's kind of an amateur uh, yes. way of doing things. You know, it's no professionalism in it. It's like you do it for the first time. And and I think that's that's the best place to be in writing. And you can feel it in the novel. It's not like a professional, you know, uh, smooth. And, and it's like it's much more awkward. Uh-huh. And, and I think Munch somehow... Searched for those places in his painting uh, throughout his life, actually. You, you make, a, in this context, a, a really interesting point about Munch, which is that his, his relatively uh, imperfect technical training compared to contemporaries was an advantage uh, because it kind of forced him to find new solutions that they, in their more professional fluency, uh, didn't have to reinvent the wheel. That must be true in a way, because it is strange. You have many painters in a generation in a country, and it's so strange that, you know, one of them should go in that direction and everyone else not. Uh-huh. W- what makes him or her go go there? It's the same with, you know, uh, Van Gogh or or any great painter you can think of. You know, why and how? And, and still, those painters 
or those artists are the one that capture the time that we think of as representative for that period. You know, and that's so strange because they were really at odds with uh, with uh, with the time and, and and with the generation. And you know, that's there's an interesting dynamic in that. I think I I, I found from reading this book, you're a painter as well. No. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not. I, I should really not have that in the book. But what I, what I did, I was, I was very, uh, but I was very depressed uh, a few years ago. It was like I almost, you know, almost couldn't move. And I, I drove into town. I bought some oil painting, and and I always wanted to do it. And I just started to paint, and the f- getting colors on the canvas. And make it into forms on the canvas. Completely was obsessive. It's like it's fields and it's sky mm-hmm. with uh, with um, clouds on, and, and, it's, and it's worthless. But I get out of the depression, and <laughs> and I, I do love it. But it's just for my own well-being. It's not nothing. It's just fun to have colors on a canvas. Like monk? No, not like monk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Carl Uwe Knausgård, this has been uh, a great pleasure. Uh, the book is a pleasure. Uh, it was great talking to you. Thanks. Great talking to you too. Thank you very much. Carl Uwe Knausgård's book, So Much Longing in So Little Space, The Art of Edvard Munch, is out now. Coming up, how being a feminist hero can get complicated. I remember stepping out in the mid-'90s on stage in a dress and it was like I committed an atrocity to humankind Uh, you know just immediate cries sell out from the crowd the singer-songwriter Ani DeFranco on the passions she ignites in her fans of course uh, then marrying a person with a penis (laughs) you know again um, outrageous and unacceptable to some people That is next on Studio 360. I am not a pretty girl. Studio 360. The thing about fanatics is it's often the ones that love you the most that will turn and stick a knife right through you when you piss them off or disappoint them in some way. That is the singer-songwriter Ani DeFranco reading from her new memoir, talking about the complicated relationship she has with very fervent fans. It's a relationship between a projector and a screen. And as the screen, I've felt my humanity thoroughly erased many times. Women especially can be emotionally intense. The letters and gifts that came backstage, the portraits and paintings and jewelry... The signed books and demo tapes, the typed resumes and handwritten manifestas, the invitations for me and Andy to go to someone's house after the show for homemade lesbian porn and tea. It was all very sweet and funny until it wasn't. DeFranco grew up in Buffalo, New York, and that's where she started her own label at age 19. First, just to distribute her own music, but now with other well-known artists, including Sarah Lee and Andrew Bird, the label is called Righteous Babe Records, which is sort of perfect because DeFranco is a fierce feminist and advocate for LGBTQ rights. You were fresh off the boat from Virginia, ahead of you in New York City under my belt. We met in a train when we were both 19. I remember where we were standing. 
breaks laws. For going on 30 years, that righteousness has made DeFranco a hero to lots of women. But it also led a lot of her fans to have certain strong expectations. And they were quick to let her know when they felt betrayed. When, say, they thought she wasn't fighting the man hard enough. Like when she married men. Twice. So connecting with fans but trying not to have them get too connected is something DeFranco writes about in her memoir. In a way, she's been dealing with how open she can or should be since she was a kid. Yeah, it's funny because my mother, I think, had a vision of a family that was extremely intimate and open with each other. And the irony of the house I grew up in is that wasn't the vibe. It was one big open room on the first floor and one big open room on the second floor. People were very hidden from each other, and there was a lot that went unsaid. And so I think I was caught in this sort of paradox and um, have been exploring ever since um, the boundaries of privacy and, and intimacy and family and searching for an intimate relationship with people who see me and who I see in return. I search through music. Spend your eyes and look closer I'm not between you and your ambition I am a poster girl with no poster I am 32 flavors and then some And I'm beyond your peripheral vision So you might want to turn your head Cause someday you are gonna get hungry And eat most of the words you just I was a teenager in the 80s. The culture, you know, was very Michael Jackson and Madonna. Just a lot of pop music and commercial, uh, a real commercial thrust to the culture. And I, I was very into music as a thing to do, you know, not a thing to buy. I released my first cassette. It was just on cassette at first uh, in 1990. And from that moment on, people came and found me. And it sort of opened up uh, the world of touring uh, uh, nationally to me. So my gigs were still pretty humble. I was playing in cafes and coffee houses and, you know, student union cafeteria halls. and But... Somehow, even way back in the day, there would be at least one or two or five people, mostly young women, who would come far to connect with the person who had made that tape. So I, you know, I started to find my tribe. I came up in the world of folk music, um, which is one of many genres in which, uh, you know, the lives of men are just more represented. You know, it's I've been working on the railroad and going off to war and, you know, these... Uh, stories of men's lives. And so in that, like so many genres, I felt talking about my experiences as a female 
was sort of startling <laughs> to people uh, in in song, and a lot of people kind of recoiled from it. A lot of people dubbed me as angry, uh, militant, but there was also a lot of women who just came out of the woodwork to say, me too. I can't tell you how many times I heard those words for decades. Um, so it's so interesting to me that that became a rallying cry more recently um, for, for women, you know, affirming each other's experience. I played the powerless in too many dark scenes And I was blessed with a birth and a death And I guess I just want some say in between Don't you understand? In the day-to-day or the face-to-face I have to act just as strong as I can Just to preserve a place where I can be A lot of what I spoke to was the experience of being prey, you know, uh, in a world of predators. Just daily survival and, and negotiation of that power dynamic. And I think a lot of young women saw an experience reflected that they just hadn't seen reflected. I am not a pretty girl. That is not what I do I ain't no damsel in distress And I don't need to be rescued So, so put me down, punk I talk about in the book releasing the record Not a Pretty Girl as a turning point. It was right around then, maybe 1995, that the fanatic, this sort of frenetic energy began to escalate around me. I remember stepping out in the mid-90s on stage in a dress and it was like I committed a, an atrocity to humankind. Uh, you know, just immediate cries, sell out from the crowd and of course uh, then marrying a person with a penis, <laughs> you know. Uh, again, um, outrageous and unacceptable to some people uh, who felt very disappointed or suddenly left out. Women in general, um, dykes in particular, to have lived lives of marginalization, to be searching so desperately for a place in the world. I think it, it meant that some people, when they found me, clung very hard, you know, and they became very demanding. And people talk about my image Like I come in two dimensions Like lipstick is a sign of my declining mind Like what I happen to be wearing The day that someone takes a picture Is my new statement for all of but also in all of those moments were my deliverance, you know? It was... Uh, those were the moments that sustained me uh, in other ways, you know? When, 
when the story that someone told of, of how my work impacted them or someone they love or the thing that they gave me back was the fuel, you know, that I used to get up the next morning. <sighs> it's ironic to me that I was on stage in front of the most amount of people uh, at one of the low points in my personal life and feeling at home in my skin. Sky is gray, and the sand is gray, and the ocean is gray. And I feel right at home in this stunning monochrome, alone in my way. I smoke and I at its peak, I was coming undone. Um, in the early 2000s, I may have been stumbling, but I was about to be reborn to something else, and that thing I'm not even ready to describe. That story was produced by Studio 360's Lauren Hansen. Ani DeFranco's memoir, No Walls and the Recurring Dream, will be out May 7th. When Ani DeFranco was here, we also asked her about one of her big influences. Oh, man. Yeah, Pete Seeger. My fingers warmed up here. I carry a lot of his lessons uh, with me. Pete Seeger was a mentor and hero for generations of folkies and rockers of various stripes. But it wasn't just his storytelling that impressed a lot of them, including DeFranco. It was also his activism. His energy as an activist um, really struck me, you know. When he saw what needed to be done, he didn't wait for somebody else to do it. He would do it, you know. He would write to me uh, himself, you know, or call me and say, Ani, we need to do this thing. Can you do this thing, you know? And you'd think a man operating at his level would have people to do that stuff for him, you know? But no, I think when it mattered, he he took it upon himself, you know, again and again and again and again and again and again. And he made it look easy and natural, you know? So I feel like he was a great example of don't delegate evolution. <laughs> you know, do it. Pete Seeger would have turned 100 on May 3rd. His career really got going in the 1940s and 50s as a member of the Weavers, a, a very popular lefty folk group. And then he went out on his own. In 1953, I was asked to sing at Oberlin College. A small group of students said, we've got the basement of the art school. It'll hold 200 people, and I think if we pass the hat, we'll make your bus fare. So I took a bus to Cleveland. They picked me up. And sure enough, I made my bus fare. A year later, I went out to Oberlin and sang in the chapel for 500 people. Now I got more money, too. I could afford to fly out there. And the next year, I went out to Oberlin and sang for 1,000 people in that big auditorium. And now I was going from college to college to college. It was the most important work I ever did in my life. 
Seeger died in 2014, but four years earlier, I visited him at his house in upstate New York, this house he'd built himself by hand in the woods overlooking his beloved Hudson River. The place was totally charming and sweet, like him. You know what I need to do is put on my hearing aid. Okay. It's in the other room. Alrighty. I'd gone to talk with him about This Land is Your Land. The song was written by his pal Woody Guthrie, but it was Seeger who made it one of the best-known and most beloved American songs of all time. When Seeger was blacklisted as a commie during the McCarthyist period, he traveled from college to college singing and playing, about to catch the 60s wave. In the 1960s, the most talented singers and songwriters came along, not just Bob Dylan and Phil Oakes, Buffy St. Marie and Joni Mitchell, people that are part of history now. And they went from college to college. Do you feel as though they were your children a bit? I look upon uh, this whole country, I've got not hundreds, but thousands, maybe tens of thousands of grandchildren and great-grandchildren, people who got the idea, hey, you can say something with a song instead of a speech. And uh, if it's a good song, other people will pick it up and sing it. 25 or 30 years before dropping out of college to rebel against the man was even a thing, Seeger had done it. The reason I left Harvard in my second year was because I felt that professors could be just as selfish and foolish as anybody else. I remember one of them insisted that we must use his definition of words like ideational. And once he tried to persuade the whole class, don't waste your time trying to save the world. What you must do is study it. You cannot save the world. All you can do is study. Which is quite a thing to say in 1937, 38. Exactly. There was Hitler coming along, and some of us were trying to figure out how to stop him. Singing at Obama's inauguration a year ago. How did that come about? Mainly an extraordinary, wonderful, honest man named Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen invited you down there to be part of that? He arranged the whole thing, and it was so well organized, it was unbelievable. A large cast of several hundreds. There were teenagers from Washington who memorized the choruses and joined in on them. And uh, all I had to do was give the lines to the audience. I shouted, as I was walking that ribbon of highway. And now the audience sings, as As I I was walking that that ribbon of highway. So above me. The audience sang the whole song. Biggest audience I ever had in my life. Like a million people stretching out from Lincoln Memorial all the way to the Washington Monument. I spoke with Pete Seeger in 2010 for our American Icon story on This Land is Your Land, which you can hear on our website, studio360.org. Also there, you can see a video of some of our conversation with his fantastic view of the Hudson in the background. He was 94 when he died, and this week is the centennial of his birth. Julia Lowry Henderson and Pike Malinowski produced that interview. And so we keep on while we live Until we have no, no more to give And when these fingers can strum no longer 
and the old banjo to young ones stronger and when these fingers can strum no longer and the old banjo to young ones stronger So though it's darkest before the dawn, this thought keeps us moving on through all this world of joy and sorrow. We still can have singing tomorrows through all this world. Sing it with me of joy and sorrow we still can have singing tomorrows through all this world of joy and sorrow we still can have singing tomorrow Coming up, more performance as activism. Singers singing songs over and over again for hours that are not kind to women. Under my thumb, the girl who once pushed me around. It's down to me, yes it is. How Under My Thumb got under their skin. That's next on Studio 360. Change has come, she's under my thumb. <laughs> Ain't it the truth, babe? Studio 360. That, of course, is Every Breath You Take by the Police. It sounds like a romantic ballad about devotion, which is why it's been played at one billion weddings. But listen to the lyrics a little more closely. It's hard to imagine a worse soundtrack for starting a marriage. The song is about stalking. So, terrible wedding song, but perfect for a certain site-specific art project. The project, produced in San Francisco last fall, was called Romantic Songs of the Patriarchy. It took place in the Mission District in the Women's Building, which is a provider of all kinds of services to women. The piece was by an Icelandic artist named Ragnar Kjernsson, and it worked like this. Around 20 female and non-binary singers were positioned all over the building. Each one of them was assigned to sing one song that sounds romantic, but which is arguably, or very definitely, misogynistic. Such as this bit of lettery from Rod Stewart. Don't say a word, my virgin child. Just let your inhibitions run wild. The secret is... 
upstairs before the night's too old. And this one by the Beatles. And this astonishing song by The Crystals, all the more remarkable given that Carol King co-wrote it, and it was produced by Phil Spector, who is now in prison for murdering a woman on their first date. the singers who took part in the art project performed the same song over and over and over again live for three days. One of those singers was a musician named Jules Indelicato. We were each given songs. The songs were not our choice. (laughs) I got Under My Thumb by the Rolling Stones. My whole demeanor when performing this song was very full of myself and suave and proud that I had tamed this wild beast. The difference in the clothes she wears, it's down to me. The change has come. She's under my thumb. And at the end of the song, there's this gigantic release that becomes greater and greater with every repetition. And then a breath, and you start again. You stop seeing it in the, like, in the lens of time, and it becomes more of a sculpture or a painting. In the first minute, people would come in, they'd realize what song I'm singing, and excitement would come over their face, like, oh, honey, she's doing the Rolling Stones. Listen. And by the end of the first chorus, I'd see the smile kind of leave, and I'd see them start to fidget, and I'd see their eyes kind of searching to lock onto mine. There was this one very emotional turn where I had really, really gotten into it and really started to feel like I was that person in the song, that toxic, powerful, snide man with no shame. And I'm singing my heart out, very subdued, but very intense. And I look up. And this woman is crouched in the corner, clutching her heart and clutching her mouth with her other hands and just shaking her head and sobbing. And I look up with a sneer and a smile on my face right as I say, she's under my thumb. And at that moment, my, my... my throat caught up in my chest and my eyes started welling up and I look at her and she looks at me and I realize that 
some of this is kind of seeping into my body. <laughs> some of this pride in some of this like snarky toxicity. I just felt so gross. And I look at her on the ground and I see how much she's going through. And then I look up and I realize that there's a little girl in the room and she's watching this whole interaction. And she's been there for the whole song. And I don't see her parents around anywhere. And then I think about her. And I think about all of the songs that she's heard today. Girl, you'll be your woman soon. And how she's growing up being shaped by the same stuff. And it kind of just made me really overwhelmed at how deeply hurt we are by pop culture. And the way that they try to define us and shape us. And so I wanted to stand up right there and just leave. <laughs> but I sat back down and I took a breath and I started the song again and again and again, the whole while just thinking about how this magnifying glass that we're casting on pop culture is so necessary in these times. Girl, who once had me down under my thumb? The girl who once pushed me around, it's down to me. That's Jules and Delicato singing and talking about the marathon performance they did as part of Romantic Songs of the Patriarchy. Our story was produced by Magnolia McKay with editing and engineering by Gabe Graben. It was adapted from a segment that aired originally in San Francisco on the KALW show Cross Currents. Is there some song that you maybe loved at first until you listened to the lyrics and then decided, uh-oh, no, yuck? If so, we'd like to hear about it. You can send us a voice memo or email to incoming at studio360.org. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to the podcast where you can hear my conversation with the great Scottish writer, Allie Smith. She has just published Spring, which is the third in her quartet of novels named for each of the seasons. The first in the series, Autumn, came out right after Britain voted to leave the EU three years ago. People called that the first great post-Brexit novel. I spoke with Ali Smith about the seeming contradiction of a literary novel ripped from the headlines. The thing about, what should we say, ripped from the headlines, it, it's a funny old thing, writing books. I, I've been thinking about writing a seasonal quartet, as it were, four books, which would all be called simply names of the seasons, which would then go to make up a bigger book for about 20 years. And then I began to think about... Uh, what it would mean to have a contemporary novel and I started writing this novel 
And as I was writing it, we came up to the referendum here in the UK. And, you know, it was really obvious that there was a pretty big division coming and it came. And so I asked my publisher in, in the end, could I simply have an extra month to attend to the novel to make sure that the novel, I kind of felt like I would be cheating the novel if it didn't face the contemporary or the country didn't face it. Right. It, it's a very adult novel, but it also, there's a children's book aspect occasionally oh, to the okay. prose. I have this theory, right, that a really good book can be read by anybody, no matter what age that person is. Uh-huh. I think that that theory hit me when I was a kid myself and grew up in a, a household of older siblings whose books were pretty much the only books we had in the house. Otherwise, it was library books. And you were which, the youngest of many. And I was the youngest quite far back of four. So, um, you know, I was eight years old and I was reading things, which when I was 20, I read Joyce's Dubliners and I thought, oh, God, I... I know this. I read it when I was eight. So you can read Swift at any age, you'll get something from it. You can read Joyce at any age, you'll get something from it. So I don't see a a dichotomy in that. You know, I see books always working for all of us at all our ages, different times. You can hear the full version of my conversation with Ali Smith in our podcast stream, which you ought to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. It's like you don't know how to do it. It's no professionalism in it. It's much more awkward. It's like you do it for the first time. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. It's so familiar, Tom Hanks can hum the entire theme from memory. It's a movie that changed cinema. There was nothing like it before, and there really has been very little since. And conjured the future. Open the garage door, please, Alexa. The latest in our series, American Icons, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Next time on Studio 360.